good morning. I'm Pastor Allen, and greetings. We're welcome, and uh, we're glad that you're here. Uh, we teach in series, meaning we take a topic and talk about it for a few weeks. We started last week, uh, Life App series. Uh, that's on our audio is on our website, on Facebook. You can watch the watch actually the whole service. And in case you can't be here on a Sunday, you want to watch it live. Uh, that's streaming also. <clears throat> Today's topic is the forgiveness app. So last week we talked about application makes all the difference. It's funny in all other aspects of life, diet, exercise, we understand that, right? To say, I'm going to go on a diet, but don't do anything, we realize that's not going to help. Say, I'm going to exercise and don't do anything, we know that's not going to help. But in our spiritual life, in church life, we think just as we have an idea or we have a thought or we have a belief or even make a commitment to something, there's some benefit to that when there actually isn't. So again, application makes all the difference. And so for today and the next four weeks, we're going to talk about five specific applicable things to help you in your in your life. Now, if you're not a Christian, we're delighted that you're here, not a Jesus follower. These principles, we believe, work and make your life better and make you better at life, even if you're not a Jesus follower. They work even better if you're a Jesus follower. And, and our hidden agenda is that you will be one day. Uh, but we're glad that you're here. <clears throat> now, I don't know about you, but we had a tough week. And if I was a surveyor, probably half of you would probably say the same thing. So last week I talked about James being the brother of Jesus and how it might be. And so my wife found me this uh, funny video, one of our favorite comedians, talking about that topic. So when you have a tough week, you can either laugh or cry, right? So we choose to laugh and we'd like to share that with you this morning. So laugh along with us. I like reading the Bible. I was reading the Bible, found out, uh, found out Jesus had a little brother. Anybody know his name? James. When I read that, I was like, Phew. How much pressure was that? <laughs> Jesus, your big brother? How many times did you have to hear, why come you can't be more like Jesus, James? Because <laughs> you know, everybody probably thought that James could do the same thing Jesus could do, but he couldn't. He was just James. He wasn't James Christ. <laughs> Remember the wedding banquet? Jesus turned water into wine. Everybody was amazed, but they don't tell you about the next banquet. Jesus left early. They started running out of wine. Everybody looked at James. <laughs> it's like, man, last time this happened, your brother made some wine, dude. You, you just going to stand there with your sandals on? You're not going <laughs> to make some Kool-Aid or something, man? You're not going to do anything? <sighs> you know, James had problems just like any other kid had problems. He would try to follow his big brother around. So everywhere Jesus went, James followed him. That's what little brothers do. So if Jesus went there, so did James. I bet one time, James almost drowned. <laughs> oh, you just got that joke just now, didn't you? <laughs> Jesus walked on water and James tried to just went I'm sure James had problems. He would go to his parents with his problems. And his parents, especially his, his mom, was trying to throw him a bone once in a while. They'd pray over their food. they like, Lord, we just thank you for this food. In James' name. <laughs> I 
James had problems. He would go to his parents with his problems, and you know what they would say? He'd be like, well, what would Jesus do, you know? <laughs> then they gave him a bracelet. They gave him a bracelet, and um, <laughs> then he started selling those bracelets, you know? <laughs> Made some money selling bracelets. What would be cool is a what would James do bracelet, right? Same initials, different meaning. <laughs> Completely different meaning. You're driving down the street, you get cut off in traffic. You fuss them out, your pastor gonna be like, yo, you got a what would Jesus do bracelet on? You're like, uh-uh, that's what would James do. <laughs> Driving an imaginary car for a long time, isn't he? Also found out when Jesus was 12 years old, Mary and Joseph lost Jesus. They lost Jesus. And you know the first thing they had to do was pray. I wonder what that prayer must have sounded like. Joseph probably did the prayer. He was like, oh, God. <laughs> Dear God, um, oh, forgiving God. Um, you remember that Messiah you gave us? You got another one somewhere, man? We don't. That was the only we got in some? Okay, we're going to find him. We're going to find him. All right. It's good to laugh, isn't it? Uh, Michael J Jr. is one of our, our, our favorites. <clears throat> and he did talk about forgiving God, and that's our topic. So I'd like to start off by telling you that the second... Who knows what the second most common symbol or logo is in the world? Can anybody take a guess? Kind of hard to guess, wouldn't it be? Uh, we'll put it up on the screen. Um, this is the second most common symbol in the world. So if you put that up, the vast majority of people all over the world know what that represents. So it's pretty fascinating. In 1886, a guy by the name of George, George Pembleton, I believe his name was, uh, a, um, a chemist, invented Coke. And not bad for basically sugar water, right? That's what it is, fizzy sugar water. It's the second most common symbol in the world. And they have this mission statement, Coke does. And I don't know if you know what it is, but it's that a Coke will be in arm's reach of everyone on the planet. And they're close. That Coke will be at arm's reach of everyone on the planet. Now, I bet you can guess what the most number one recognizable symbol in the world is. The cross. All right. So let me put that on the screen. That's the most recognizable symbol in the world. And I would like to think that the church or God would have that same mission statement. That Jesus with the cross would be in arm's reach of everyone on the planet. So I want to start off. We're going to get there in a minute. But I want to start off by asking you a question. Have you ever been wronged? Has anybody ever lied about you, cheated you, betrayed you, um, gossiped about you, uh, etc.? Kind of a rhetorical question, right? The interesting thing about those experiences are they shape us, don't they? We are shaped by our experiences, especially our negative experiences. Not only are we shaped by the experience, by the hurt and by the pain, we're also shaped by our response to that hurt or that pain. 
And some of you maybe get over those things easier than others. Some of us carry those things around with us. So we are shaped by them. But let me ask, uh, we actually even fantasize sometimes about revenge, the, uh, having a grudge and carrying it out. And especially if it's somebody famous like the president, we know we're never going to get a chance to do that. But we fantasize about being able to tell him what we think. Maybe your boss, you probably won't carry that one out either unless you're ready to retire <laughs> uh, or got a different job. You know, you might fantasize about, you know, giving them a piece of your mind. But let me just ask you something about that grudge holding, that revenge factor. How does that work for you? Is that really productive? In fact, some of us may be holding on to things from years ago. And the fact that we're still holding on it proves that it really is not working very well. And so it produces this, uh, for a better word, emotional weight. And we can almost sometimes be crushed under this emotional weight of this desire to get even, uh, revenge, to get a grudge. And for some of you, I understand, this may be so fresh, this happened so recently, or maybe it's ongoing right now, that you can't even begin to understand or listen to what I'm going to say. I would just ask that you would please pay attention, and maybe you can use some of this stuff when the hurt's not so fresh. So, God stands ready to help you release the grip of the grudge. That's God's desire, and that's my prayer for you. So this morning, we're going to talk about the story behind the cross. We're going to look at something in the Bible that actually Paul wrote that talks about this issue, and then we're going to tell you how to apply it the life apt of application. Then we're going to end by telling you a story of someone who actually did that. So let's get started with the um, first part. Forgiveness works better than grudge holding. It does. Well, grudge holding doesn't work, right? So forgiveness has got to work better than grudge holding. Now, we can't get over a grudge by willpower. You ever try and do that? I always call willpower will weakness. Because <laughs> it just doesn't last, doesn't it? Whether it's exercise, diet, whatever it is. I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Eh, I'm not going to do it anymore. Same thing with forgiveness. It's not by willpower, but it's by the power of the cross that we can get past grudges. <clears throat> I know, I don't know your story. And I don't. I, I, and I don't mean to belittle your story. You may have been deeply hurt, d- deeply mistreated. But I know... That healing starts with the cross. That's where it starts. Now I want to talk about the cross a little bit this morning, kind of give you some, some background I thought was kind of interesting. First, the cross, especially in the Eastern uh, Roman legions, uh, which would have been in Jesus' area, didn't make crosses like that one. Their crosses look more like this. Not a small T, but a capital T. The other fascinating thing was, we often see in movies, we, the one we showed Good Friday wasn't like this, but in movies, Jesus carrying that whole thing, right? And it's just kind of impossible. Well, they, they didn't carry the whole thing. They just carried the crossbar part, all right? The other thing is the wood probably wasn't that thick, all right? It was much thinner, just what they needed to make the cross. And that upright part stayed in the ground. They didn't take it down and nail people to it and put it back up. So they laid the person down, they nailed them to the the upright part, and then put it up. But the most fascinating thing is this. 
in, in the pictures and in the movies, you see Jesus and the other guy, three, two guys, way up in the air, like 20 feet in the air, 15 feet in the air. Now think about this logically. If you're the Roman soldiers and you're executing, are you going to go to all the effort to, to crucify those people 20 feet in the air? Wouldn't it work just as well six feet in the grave? And so they're much, most likely much shorter, maybe this high, but there was a psychological reason why the Romans would do this. They wanted you and us, the audience, to be able to watch the agony in the face of the person crucified. So what Rome knew is that once you experience someone dying on a cross, you never ever forget it. And you understand that Rome had its fist on you and you better not cross them because anytime they want, they could crucify anybody they wanted. So they were sending a message. But on that day that Jesus was crucified, the kingdom of God was sending a message. And I believe this was the message that God was sending. He knew that once you and I came face to face with the Savior of the world crucified, spit on, beaten, and bloody, you and I would never, ever forget it. You ever fantasize about actually being there when Jesus was crucified? In one sense, we all were there because we're all sinners and Christ died for all of us. So the cross is, is, is kind of timeless, isn't it? It was real 2,000 years ago and it's real today and it trumps everything. It trumps anything that anybody's ever done to you or anything you've ever done to someone else. Whatever regrets you have, whatever sin, what bad habits you have, the cross and the grace and the mercy of God is bigger. And when you and I come face to face with that Savior on a cross, our hearts are changed. They're shifted. We're never the same. So I put on the outline, we are not just recipients of God's grace and mercy, but distributors of God's grace, in this case, forgiveness. And that's the way you and I can break the chains of the grip of the grudge is not only by being receivers, but distributors of God's forgiveness. Simplified as much as I could, I put it this way. Forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. Are you forgiven? Then you forgive. End of story. No ifs, ands, or buts. Doesn't matter who did what. Forgiven people forgive. So we're going to look at something Paul wrote. And he, in five verses, he gives us the life after forgiveness. So let's look at that. It's in Romans chapter 12. Never, never means never, right? (laughs) Never pay back evil with more evil. Now again, forgiveness doesn't belittle your hurt. It's not saying it's not a big deal. In fact, Paul's saying here, it is a big deal. It's a huge deal. It's evil. So that's not the point. But don't repay back evil for evil. Do. Again, we're talking about application. We're talking about doing. He says, do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Or you do what's right. We tell people in counseling all the time this. It's always right to do what's right. Right? It's always right to do what's right. You may not feel like it. You may not want to. But it's always right 
to do what's right, to do what's honorable. He goes on. Again, do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. Now, he's not saying that you're supposed to stay in an abusive relationship. He's not saying you're supposed to stay with a partner that's cheating you. But in that breakup, if you will, you do everything you can to make it peaceable. And he's going to give us some more details how to do that in a minute. Uh, verse 19, he says, Dear friends, never, there's that word again, never take revenge. Never, ever. Now, he gives us an out. And here's the out. It's pretty good. Really good out. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. Does God ever get anger? angry? Absolutely. By righteous, he means he gets it right. The scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. So this is not a trick question. You can answer out loud. Whose job is revenge? God's job, right? So when you and I are seeking revenge, whose job are we trying to do? Again, not a trick question. God's job. All right, let me ask you one last question. Who can do that job better? God can. Because you know when we get angry, we usually don't do it right, do we? But God can do it right. He can get it right. Now, are we saying the person gets off the hook because we forgive them? Absolutely not. In fact, I kind of feel sorry for them. Because if God's getting revenge, I don't want to be in their place. And this can be so freeing. I forgive you, and I feel sorry for you because God's got, got it. <laughs> and God's going to take care of it. And he'll do a much better job than I will. So then he gives us kind of this ah uh, part of the application of forgiveness. He says, instead... Instead of seeking revenge, trying to get back, trying to get even, he says instead, <laughs> not just forget it, not just move on with your life. If your enemy, the person that's hurt you, are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Ugh, that's the last thing I want to do, right? And he explains it. This is awesome. He says, in doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame or fire on their heads. It's kind of like that. Take that. <laughs> I'm going to be so nice to you, it's going to drive you crazy. So sometimes we think forgiveness is this passive kind of walk all over me thing. It's just the opposite. Forgiveness is aggressive. That's pretty aggressive, isn't it? Feeding the, your enemy, giving drink to enemy. Forgiveness is Aggressive. <laughs> this is the way you break the chains. The bondage of unforgiveness. This is the way we get out of the grudge. So he's basically telling them we have two options when we are mistreated. Not 10, not 20, just two. Two options. Don't let evil conquer you. That's seeking revenge. You know, Eye for an eye, you treat me bad, I'm going to treat you bad. It kind of goes against the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would want them to do to you. But you can have victory, you can conquer your hurt. Conquer evil. Not by just sitting around thinking about it, not intellectually forgiving them, but by actually doing good 
to those who've harmed you. Now, I know the pushback. I don't feel like it. And this is a big principle we use in counseling also. It's really hard to feel your way into an action. It's just really hard to do. But you can act your way into a feeling. You can. It works. I've done it. Some of you have done it. So I treat the person the way I want to feel like doing, even though I don't feel like doing, and eventually the feelings come. So we can conquer. We can have victory. We can overcome. So, quickly, we're going to give you four steps from this passage of, of the app, the way they apply forgiveness. First, embrace God's forgiveness of you. Who is the hardest person to forgive sometimes? You, right? Especially when you've some, done some bonehead thing, some stupid thing. So when you come to Jesus, if you haven't, again, we're glad that you're here. But if you, when you, you and I come to Jesus, all our sins, big, little, fat, whatever, sins are forgiven. They're all forgiven. All right? So if God's forgiven you, shouldn't you forgive yourself? And we talked about it, forgiving people forgive. So just, just say, okay. That's part of being a Jesus follower. Doesn't matter what anybody does to me whenever. I'm going to forgive him. Because I'm never going to have to forgive anybody anywhere near as much as God has already forgiven me. In that perspective, it shouldn't be as difficult as it is sometimes, right? Thirdly, let God avenge you. Say, okay, God, it's all yours. You got it. You can do a better job than I can anyway. And then lastly, this hard part, overcome evil with good. Kill him with kindness, we say sometimes, right? Kill him with kindness. So, rest, grab a hold of that truth, and live it in your life. Now, I know, again, the pushback, I, you don't know my situation, and I don't. If you can't do this now, maybe you can a week from now, or two weeks from now, or a month from now. But I want to end with a story of amazing forgiveness. Again, it may not be as bad as your situation, but I, I, I think it probably is. Worse. And it comes from a book and a movie called Unbroken. And uh, it's about a guy named Louis Zapparini. He was, uh, grew up in Southern California, and he's kind of a bad kid. But he got into running, and maybe that's one reason I like the story. At one time, he held the record time for the mile. Anyway, he made the Olympics in 1936. Who knows where the Olympics were in 1936? Berlin, Germany, and Hitler, right? And who won the most gold medals for the United States in the Olympics? Jesse Owens. Guess who was his roommate? Louis Zapparini. And he was favored to win the mile race or whatever it is. It's not a mile in the Olympics, but in the 1940 Olympics. Was there a 1940 Olympics? No, World War II had started. He actually met Hitler, by the way. Uh, when he was there. So, Lewis enlists in the uh, Army Air Corps. He's positioned, uh, stationed in the Pacific, and he's in these uh, bombing, bombing crews, bombing run. And one day, they were out on a rescue trip, and they took an older plane, and they, got, they said it was fine, but it wasn't, and uh, they went down in the Pacific. Everybody but three, uh, Louis and two others, were killed. And so the three of them are in two rafts. Before long, one of the others die, and so they're down to two, Louis and another guy. 
And for 47 days, they survived in the South Pacific. For a few days, they flew planes looking for them and couldn't find them. And after that, the planes stopped coming. And uh, they drifted 2,000 miles during those 47 days. One night in the middle of that time, 20-some days in, Louis laying in the raft looking up the stars at night and he prays his prayer even though he's not a believer. He prays his prayer, God, if you get me out of this, I'll serve you with my life. Kind of, I call it foxhole religion. But once you get out of the foxhole, what happens? And you forget it, right? And that's exactly what he did. So after 47 days, the Japanese find them. And so they're rescued, but where do they wind up? In a, a concentration camp. And the Japanese were, were really cruel. And he was mistreated, and all of them were. And finally, uh, this guy, give you his Japanese name, but his nickname was The Bird. And he recognized Louis. And that made his anger even worse. And so he made it his goal to make Louis's life as miserable as possible. One day, he recounts this, he had another American punch him in the face over and over and over. Another time, the bird hit him with his belt and cracked his skull. It got so bad that Louis was fantasizing of trying to plan some way to kill this guy. Of course, he couldn't. About that time, he started seeing American, about two years later, American planes flying over. And he began to think, well, maybe the war is almost over. And it was. And he got released. And he went back to Southern California. He met a, a beautiful woman, got married. But he had nightmares every night. He couldn't leave the concentration camp behind. It about ruined his marriage, he became an alcoholic trying to deal with this. But in 1949, his wife said, hey, Louis, there's this, this evangelist, this preacher in, in Los Angeles. I want you to go and, and hear him with me. And of course, Louis had no interest. But women can be pretty persuasive sometimes, right, guys? And so he talked her, she talked him into going. And he went, he hated it. And then he got home, she, she, she kept after him, and these crusades went on for quite a while. And eventually he, he, he agreed to go back. He said, we can go back only if when the preacher starts praying, we leave. And she said, okay. So the preacher gets up, uh, preaches, Billy does, and Billy Graham, and he starts to pray. Louis starts to head out, and while he's walking out, he remembers his foxhole prayer. And he turns around and walks down the aisle the front and gives his life to Jesus. It's 1949. That's where he went, finally, to the cross. And he tells the story he never had a nightmare again. So in 1952, he had the opportunity to go back to Japan. And he looked up all these guards that, that mistreated him. And he went to every one of them. You know what he said? I forgive you. I forgive you. But he couldn't find the bird. The bird was a war criminal. He was in hiding. And as he tells the story, you're going to hear in a minute, he thought he committed suicide, but he didn't. In 1997, I tried to do the math. That's 45 years later, right? In 1997, 60 Minutes finds the bird. And they're going to go interview him. And they come to, to Louis and ask if he had something he'd like to say to him. And we'll show you a short video of what he had to say. When you went back to Japan, you... You shared the gospel with some of the very guards that mistreated you and you wanted to meet the bird, but you were told the bird was dead. He wasn't, but you didn't know that at the no, time. But you wrote him a letter. Do you have that letter with you? I, I, yeah, I brought it with me. This is the letter that Louis 
wrote to the bird. You want me to read it? Yo, would you okay. read it, please? <laughs> okay. This is to Master Shiro Watanabe. As a result of my prisoner of war experience under your unwarranted and original punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. I, it was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was to the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights not only as a prisoner but also as a human being were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live under the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble, but thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced the hate I had for you, and Christ even said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Tsugamo Prison. I asked them about you and was told that you probably had committed harakiri, which I was sad to hear. At that moment, like the others, I also forgave you, and now I would hope that you would also become a Christian. Amen. That's uh, forgiveness. Again, I do not know your situation, but I'd be willing to bet it's not as severe as Louis. God's forgiveness. Quickly, and then we'll have a song, let you go. Apply the app forgiveness. Embrace God's forgiveness for you. And you can begin that this morning if you never have. Remember, forgiving people forgive. Let God avenge you and overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. We thank you for men like Louis and their example. I thank you that you gave him a long and prosperous life on earth. He lived to 19, uh, 2014. He was 97 years old. We thank you for uh, just the encouragement it gives us that our situations may be bad, but uh, the power of the cross is, is greater. And then we can be set free from the grudge, the hurt, and the pain. And God, I want to pray for anyone here that's not a believer, that has stepped across that line, that this would be the day that they would receive your grace and your forgiveness and become forgiven people that forgive others. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.